want to really focus on what the crucifixion is and what it meant that Jesus Christ, God's son, was crucified for you and I. Um, we've been focusing on this final week of Christ, his, his earthly life, and the major events that took place there. And there's one overriding theme that has occurred you know, over these last weeks and also coming in for the next couple weeks as I'm looking ahead, um, that no matter what event you're looking at, whether it's the triumphal entry, whether it's the Last Supper, whether it's the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot, Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, whether it's his arrest, his trial before the religious leaders, ultimately his crucifixion. If you ever read those events and you look at those events, you, you, you just, something wells up within you at how innocent Jesus was and how wrong it was for what they were doing. And it's easy for us to, to look at all of these events and see that Jesus Christ was a victim. But if we look at these events closer, it's also evident that Jesus Christ is in total control of everything that is taking place. I mean, not only as these events in the final week are taking place, but hundreds of years earlier, you know, God said what his son would do to save us from our sins. He said way back in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verses 2, concerning the birth of Christ, he says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. He is going forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. In Isaiah 17, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is going to be with us. Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. So all of the events of Christ's life from his birth, they are numbered hundreds of years earlier. Jesus Christ, God the Father, is in total control of what is happening here. And then as we get to the crucifixion, there are so many prophecies that pointed to what Jesus Christ was going to do. You find a lot of them in Psalm 22, verse 1. Let me just read about four or five of them here. <clears throat> Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. In verses 7 and 8, he says, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lips. They wag their heads saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. This is, this is some 600 years, 700 years before these events will actually happen at the cross. God is saying, this is what my son is going to do. Verse 14 through 16 says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd which is an interesting term. We don't use that today, but that's kind of in an archaeological dig. An old piece of pottery that you would find was called a pot shard. And, and so he's saying it's, it's dried up like something that you, you've dug up hundreds of years old. You know, my strength is dried up like that. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. And finally, then in verse 18, it says, they divided my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. So let's never forget when we're looking at this final week of Jesus Christ, you know, something within us, you know, rises against the innocence of him. And, and, and you know, but he is not a victim here. 
He is in total control of what is taking place. And this morning, I want to focus on the event of the cross. I want to talk about the crucifixion. And I'll be honest, this, this isn't easy to do. I've talked about it before um, on this, and, and uh, the, the cross, a crucifixion is gruesome. It is horrible. And I don't think we totally understand, you know, as we quote scripture about taking up our cross and following him, and, and we talk about the cross, we, we, we don't hear it like they were hearing it. We don't experience it like they were experiencing it because they understood what a crucifixion was. They understood what a person was going through when they were crucified. They saw it. These weren't something that was done, you know, in private that they executed the prisoners. These were very, very public events. They were made to be public. They were made to put fear in people, you know, so they would, would toe the line to the Roman, uh, Roman government. And so I'm going to do the best I can. It's, again, it's rather, it's rather gruesome here, but we need to understand I mean, if we're going to talk about the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, if we're going to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, we need to understand it in the context of, of what they were experiencing then. So I want to talk about the Lord's Supper. And, and again, I, I want to talk about it in, in regards to the two symbols that, we're that we are given that are supposed to remind us of the cross for you and I and the crucifixion. Um, the Lord's Supper that we observe, it's not just a ritual. It's not just something that we go through. It is very purposeful. And the symbols that God gives us are very purposeful. They are very much tied to the crucifixion. And God himself gave it to us so that we will constantly be reminded of the crucifixion and what Jesus Christ went through for you, for the forgiveness of your sin. So we'll always remember what happened, what Jesus did to save you. So we're given two symbols. We're given the symbol of the bread, and then we're given the symbol of the wine. I want to I focus on the bread for just a moment here. I want to talk about that bread being that symbol of the body of Jesus Christ. Now it says, pull this back up here. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, it says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and he is to drink the cup. So right off the bat here, we need to understand the seriousness of how we are to approach communion. I mean, words in that verse like examining ourselves. It talks about humility. It talks about attentiveness. It talks about focusing on, on what it represents, focusing on Jesus Christ and, and what he did on the cross for us. This is all very important what Christ is giving us. It isn't just something that, you know, a ritual that we go through. Now, every once in a while, when I'm up front here and we're serving communion and, um, you know, I'm participating in it just like you are, every once in a while I'll look up and, and I'll see somebody, you know, maybe, you know, laughing or making light of the communion or, or making a joke with it. Um, you know, I, I, I can't, my heart just breaks when I see something like that. I mean, the callousness of it. Just think about this for just a second. If, if you had bone cancer or you needed a kidney from somebody and somebody gave it to you 
And can you imagine going out in the hallway and, and mocking them for what they've done or, or making a joke at their expense? You know, disrespecting them, you know, the act of what they've done. And I think that's where that term comes there when it says in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven it talks about being guilty of the, of the body and the blood of the Lord. This is serious. This is a focus and all these things of examining ourselves and humility and attentiveness. This all goes into the communion, not just going through the ritual. You know, and, and, and when we aren't attentive, when we don't come humble, when we don't come with open minds and hearts and focus, it's like you're one of those mob, you know, one in the mob mocking Jesus as he was dying, hurling insults at him for what he did for you. I mean, this is a serious, serious thing that God has given us to remember how much he loves you and cares for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says this. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So a little later on, when we're going to be observing communion at the end of the service here, we're going to be passing out the bread. And the bread represents Christ's body given for you. That his literal physical body is going to receive something that your physical body deserved, my physical body deserved because of my sins. And so it's important to see what that body went through. What, what does it mean that he gave his body, that his body endured the, the, the cross and the shame. Well, let me read a few verses for you. In, in uh, John chapter 19, verse 1, it says this, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now, it struck me this past week as I was reading and, and kind of putting stuff together that I've used in the past and some new stuff and putting it all together here. kind of <coughs> um, stood out to me how quickly we read this verse. Pilate just took Jesus and scourged him. Um, you know, we read it so fast. <clears throat> so I have an article from a doctor, <clears throat> excuse me, Truman Davis, who was a doctor in, in writing on the effects of the crucifixion. He had studied it and actually what takes place in the body. So what it means that they scourge the body of Jesus. Let me read it for you here. It's, it's a, little, uh, a little bit lengthy, but here's his description of, of what takes place. He says, the prisoner, Jesus, is stripped of his clothing, and his hands are tied to a post above his head. It is doubtful whether the Romans made any attempt to follow the Jewish law in this matter of scourging. The Jews had an ancient law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. So the Pharisees always make sure that the law was strictly kept, insisted that 39 lashes be given, just in case they had miscounted uh, they would still remain, you know, within the boundaries of the law. The Roman legionnaire would step forward with a flagellant in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs and two small balls or sharp objects at the end of each of them. The heavy whip is brought down with full force against and across Jesus' shoulders, his back, and his legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continued, they cut deeper and deeper into the tissue, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and the veins of the skin. 
and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons the entire area, and the man is unrecognizable as one mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, then the beating finally stops. Puts it in context, doesn't it? That Pilate took Jesus and he scourged him. Verse 2 goes on in John 19. It says, And the soldiers then, after this scourging, this long process, this beating, the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and they place it on his head and they put a purple robe on him. Now, I've, I've used this in the past, but probably one of the most precious things that, that I own is this right here. When we were in Israel, this is the only thorn bush, type of thorn bush that grows in Jerusalem or over in Israel. It's called the yellow thorn bush, and you can see by it the huge thorns uh, that are on it. And this would have very likely have been the type of thorns that they used to put on the head of Christ. And, and if you want afterwards, when I'm up here, if your kids want to come up and see it, if you want to come up and see it and kind of get an idea of what we're talking about, what was, was put upon his head. And the other Gospels add the fact that once they put this on his head, that they struck him in the head, you know, driving these, these thorns down into him. It goes on in verses 3 through 5. And it says, they began to come up with him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. I mean, think about it for just a moment. Can you even fathom the indignity the shame that was endured by God's son. I mean, he has been stripped naked. He has been flogged. He has been spat on. He has been struck in the face, a garland of thorns on his head. And then Pilate comes out and say, behold the man, I find no guilt in him. We just beat him to a bloody pulp for you for nothing. We have mocked and we have humiliated him. No guilt whatsoever. And I look at this whole thing and, and I think, God, what are you trying to tell us? What, what can we learn from this? And, and certainly one of the applications, one of the spiritual lessons is the self-resistance of God. I mean, at that moment, I mean, it, as, as Christ is enduring all these things, no one could have comprehended at that moment. Everyone was standing off, all of his believers, his mother, everyone was standing off. And I think they were feeling horrible the indignity, the humiliation, but no one could comprehend how God could make any sense of this. I mean, they were bewildered. All that Christ had done, all of the miracles, all of his power, his teaching, all of the hope that was wrapped up in him. And now as they looked and they saw this bloodied and beaten and mocked and humiliated man standing before them, why God? God, why haven't you intervened? Why haven't you stepped in? Why haven't you put a stop to it? I mean, what kind of God would sit on his hands 
and let his son go through all of this. That's important for us to consider because haven't we all entertained similar thoughts, similar questions? I mean, when we are going through pain, or maybe we looked around us and we might see injustice, Christ shows us that God's way is not always the easy way, but his will is always right. God's way is not always the easiest way in our life, but his will is always right. And so I look at life and I may not understand how allowing a child to die or a loved one to suffer, how that can make any sense. God, how can this serve any purpose for you whatsoever? I may not see our suffering, how that can enhance God's kingdom. But folks, no one, no one, not even his devoted disciples, not even his mother could comprehend God's work as he saw Jesus mocked, beaten, his flesh torn. Nobody could make sense of it. Nobody could see the resurrection. Nobody could see in the midst of the, how God was going to bring the defeat of sin. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, it says this. It's talking about us, us in relationship to the cross, us in relationship to, to all that Christ endured. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees against us, which were hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Nobody could see that. And, and so a lot of times we have a lot of things going on in our life, and, and we may not see the purpose. We may not ever see the why on this side of eternity. But Christ's crucifixion and God's restraint tells us that God's will is always right. And we all know that Christ prayed in Matthew 26. Remember, you know, Christ prayed and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thy will. Thy will be done. I mean, that's supposed to be us in our relationship. I don't understand. Certainly I would want it to change. We'd want you to intervene, God. But God, I trust you. I trust your will. You know, I also notice the, the full suffering of Christ in this. I mean, think through this whole ordeal, Christ does nothing to ease or minimize his suffering. He asks for nothing. He doesn't plead for mercy. Only two words. We looked at them last week. I thirst. I thirst. And, and that was only to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy in Psalm 69, verse 21. It says, they also gave me uh, gall from my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So at no point did he try to, to minimize what God was doing. And so every, every single time, every single time we hold the symbol of the bread in our hands, Christ says, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember the crucifixion. Remember how much I love you. Remember the price that I paid for you. Remember everything that I endured for you. Your suffering for sin, I took all of that upon myself. That's what we're supposed to remember. I mean, he doesn't want us to forget it. It's easy to forget. 
And we're 2,000 years down the line. We haven't had a crucifixion for over 1,900 years. You know, we, we, we have no connection to it. But he wants us to remember. He wants us to understand. And so we're given this as a symbol of what his body endured for us. Now, the second symbol we're giving is that of the blood of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 26, verse 27 and 28, <coughs> excuse me, it said, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So this drink that we're going to hand out, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the lifeblood that God's son shed for you. And we're told in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. It was important that Christ shed his blood. It wasn't just important that he died, but that his blood was shed. Once again, Dr. Truman, I want to read his description of a crucifixion and what happens on the cross. He says, the crucifixion begins. Jesus Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild anesthetic mixture, and he refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to to place the patillum on the ground. That's the, the bar across that Jesus was was made to carry and ultimately Simon uh, carried for him. He was made to place it on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backwards and his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of his wrists and he drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrists and deeply into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexibility and movement. The patillum is then lifted in place at the top of the stripes, and the, the, the title reading, Jesus of Nathers, King of the Jews, is lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. And as he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrist, excruciating fiery pain shoots along his fingers and up into his arms and explode in his brain. The nails in his wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves, and he pushes himself upwards to avoid this stretching torment. He places his full weight on the nails through the nerves between the uh, metatarsal bones in his feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting themselves in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed, and the intercestal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the bloodstreams and the lungs and the cramps subside. And he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. And everything that I just read there, you repeat. And you repeat it. And it's repeated. The average crucifixion Some could take up to four days 
before the person on the cross, depending on the circumstances, before the person on the cross ultimately died. We know Christ wasn't there that long. But over and over and over and over again, the shedding of his blood, the tearing apart of his body. In the end, we know that the Jewish leaders wanted to hurry along this process of Jesus dying. They didn't want anyone hanging on the cross. You know, their Passover celebration was about to start. You know, they wanted to get back to worshiping God, so they had the soldiers break the legs of Christ. Uh, you know, when they came to Christ, they saw that he was already dead. To make sure, they, they thrust uh, a spear through his side. It says in John chapter 19, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with his spear, and immediately blood and water came out. It's kind of an interesting verse. Uh, kind of tells me the, the, the actualness of this happening, and blood and water flowing out. You think, well, how'd that water flow out in the separation? Well, if it hadn't happened, if it wasn't true, they wouldn't have written it, because it certainly would, would have caused question into what they were seeing. But, but that spear is thrust up and, and, and blood and water, and there are some medical things that would account for that, uh, but we're not going to look into them. But, but this, is, this is the process. This is what it takes for the crucifixion. And I, I want to bring this to a conclusion for us. I want to bring this to an application. You know, when we go to communion in just a moment here, how are we supposed to do this? Well, I want you to remember... In Christ's day, the cross was despised. I mean, it was vicious. The cross is horrific. The Romans were ruthless in carrying out their capital punishment. So barbaric was the practice of crucifixion that not until 200 years after Christ did the church fathers allow it to be depicted in art. And by the 4th century... 400 years after Christ, it became a symbol of our faith. On this point, C.S. Lewis once said, he said the crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. I mean, and, and, and we don't understand. I mean, we have nothing to compare something of what Jesus did for us, nothing to compare today. And it, it's kind of sad today that what we have done to the cross, you know, the reality of its message, what it means, the cross has been so diluted. I mean, we make these beautiful crosses, ornate crosses, gold, silver. We make it into jewelry. People who even aren't Christians, you know, they, they wear it as a rockets around their, lockets around their neck, you know, have nothing to do with Christ, but, you know, the cross is just a, a neat symbol. At Easter, chocolate crosses are made. You know, we often claim the symbol of the cross, but we separate it from the reality of what it means, the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and, and after my description, everything that I've given you here today, I want you to think about the first believers, how they received Christ's words when he said in Matthew ten thirty eight, when Christ said to him, who, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And we quote that verse, but we, we don't have real connectedness to the crucifixion. We don't have real connectedness to what it meant. We had never seen something like this, but they did. I mean, think about them when Christ is turning to them and said, I want you to take up your cross, and I want you to follow me. Later, he would say in Matthew 16, he'd repeat something similar. 
He said, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, make no mistake. When Jesus is asking us to take up our cross and to follow him, I mean, when he's talking about losing our life, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about what they understood very, you know, very well, this gruesome form of the suffering that's going to come with being a Christian, of what it means to give up our lives for the life of Christ. Christ is saying that our commitment to him, our faith, our trust, the reality of eternity, the reality of heaven is to be lived in a way that I'm I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to compromise. Jesus never compromised. He never changed God's will. He followed it even when others couldn't understand it. He was obedient to Christ. He was obedient to God the Father even to the point of his death. Verse 26 said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Boy, sadly today, I thought about, as I was looking over my notes today, this morning, I thought, you know, it is so sad that people would probably say, I'd take the world over my soul. I live for the immediate. I live for the right now. But the reality, what can you give for an eternity? What, what does this life have to offer you that is worth giving up something that lasts forever? So as we go to communion, I want us to, I want us to think about this in the context that it's meant. I mean, is Christ to you worth suffering? Is Christ to you worth any loss or any pain that there, this world may give out? Is the cross of Jesus Christ being lived in you? Have we taken up our cross and followed him? I mean, that was a massive commitment. That was a massive connection that he was making. He was asking his disciples to make to follow him. And that is a massive commitment that he is asking us to make to him. To take up the shame, to take up the suffering, to take up the not understanding, to take up the cross and to follow him. And if you're here today and you are not yet a Christian, I want to ask you, how would you answer that question in verse 26 where it said, for what will it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is it in this life that you are holding on to that is so much more that is keeping you from, you know, forgiveness of sin for an eternity, for a hope? What is it that this life is giving you right now? What is keeping you from Christ? I mean, miracles, the healing, the teaching, that all proved that Jesus was God's son. And he suffered and then he died for your sins. Once again, C.S. Lewis, he coined that phrase that we've talked about so often, you know, concerning Jesus Christ, that he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the son of God. And it's obvious he wasn't a liar and he wasn't crazy. So he is God's son. What is it in, that this life has given you that is of greater value than eternal life with Jesus Christ. Our only hope, your only hope, is to not stand before God and pay for the wrongs, your sins, your sins of this life. Your only hope 
is that Jesus takes them and nails them to the cross. And you do that by turning to faith in him. You do that by not just acknowledging it in your head, but acknowledging it in your heart. You accept him as your Lord and as your Savior. You accept his payment on the cross for the payment of your sins. And I invite you, if you have not yet done that, you know, this is a day. This is a time of reflection. This is a time of examination for you. If you find, if you look at your life, that you find you're, 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 you're short of that, maybe you've been around Christians, you've been around church, but you haven't made yet that decision. Today, it's so simple. It's a, it's a choice that you make in your heart to give your life to Jesus Christ. And that would be a glory that it happens on this day during this season. 